Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 138 of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson, and I have Kurt Mortensen here with me. A beautiful day here in the Wasatch Front, and where we offend people from all cultures and ways of life uh, on almost every show. And we've got more coming for you today. This is a pretty good one. <laughs> we'll get to it at the end of the show. Yeah, it's not that we mean to offend, but we always offend. And I guess we are offensive. But hopefully nobody offended for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. That was... Uh, last week, but uh, Steve, did you get your points? I got my points. I did a pretty good job. Yeah. Okay. Oh, pat yourself on the back on that one. Yeah. You, Is that what you said or she said? She said that, and I thought it, so it has to be true. <laughs> you know that book, The Five Languages of Love? You ever read that stuff? Oh, uh, yeah. Very famous. Uh -huh. I, I can't say I always do it. Like, on an intellectual level, I know what my wife's love language is. In the heat of the moment, it's not always easy to speak the foreign love language, right? But I planned this one out, and I knew it. And it's kind of funny, because we always talk about on the show that people persuade like they like to be persuaded. And, and I think that that applies here, right? So I just thought, okay, her love language is this. I got to do these things. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds dumb. <laughs> I wouldn't want those things. <laughs> but it worked like a charm. I mean, it's, it was her language. So there's something to be said for that stuff. That is, there's something there, but you know, you got to show love how they want to be loved. You got to persuade how they want to be persuaded. You've got to use the people skills that they want and like to use. So that's huge. The more you can adapt and do that, like you said, you get a lot of points just by taking the right road. The right road. And I'll tell you, the right road isn't necessarily, they might say this, but it's not necessarily the one with the most effort. It might feel like the effort, but the effort is you understanding them and, and doing what they want and listening. Man, you can just be yeah. a complete screw-up as a guy, but if you know how to do that, then you're all set. Yeah, I think all guys have learned an envelope of cash is not the right love language for most <laughs> women. <laughs> like, I love an envelope of cash. Sure, yeah. thanks. I feel loved. Like, what? You didn't put any thought. I know. I put a lot of thought into it. I went to the bank and put in the envelope. You get to get whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just didn't work very the well. The funny thing is, is with my wife, that works. If I say, hey, here's an envelope full of cash. I got the kids handled. Have a fun day. She loves there it. There you go. Um, and I think it's the kids handled thing. That's that's more that. Yeah, I'm sure that's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, because there there are four of them at our house, and oh man, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting if you got that many. You know, you know what? I think if you have one kid, you think it's exhausting. It's it's all a matter of perspective. It is. One's exhausting, then you two. But then when you have two, then you're playing uh, man to man. But then after that, you got to play zone, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. And then hopefully by the time you get four, that some, at least the older one, can help a little bit. So If we keep the sports analogies running, the only thing I can think of is if when you have four, it's not zone coverage. We've got to go to hockey, right? You have a penalty, and the other team pulled their goalie. That's, <laughs> that's all I can think of, because that's about what it feels like. There's, there's six guys skating around, and there's three of you. Well, there we go. Happy Mother's yeah, Day, everyone. <laughs> Hopefully the kids were nice to you, so let's learn something about persuasion and influence. Let's learn something about persuasion and influence. That's a good idea. I got back from the the annual fly fishing trip to Montana. Oh, that's right. How'd that go? It was go? awesome. You know, we go when the trout are spawning, and it's it's crazy. 
This is how awesome it was. I was in a boat with my dad. He caught a fish. I'm getting ready to take a picture. And I laid my pole down and the line was still in the water and I didn't know. And I'm about to snap the picture and my fishing pole starts scooting across the bottom of the boat trying to run away. (laughs) So, you know, we were catching him when we weren't even trying to catch him. So great trip. A very fun sport. And that's that's about the extent of the annual report I'm going to give because we've got lots of persuasion to talk about today. And housekeeping items, paying the bills. Got to pay the bills around here. Yeah. Everybody go to universityofpersuasion.com. We give a big old pitch on it and kind of made ourselves the the guinea pig, if you will, a couple of episodes ago. I think that was episode 133. If you want to hear us practice what we preach, go back to episode 133 of the show and listen. I give a, about a five-minute spiel on the university persuasion and why you need it. Because you do, right? This is persuasion skills are a lot like getting in shape we always like to say right you can't do a bunch of it you can't lift weights for five hours on saturday you got to do something every day and that's what university's persuasion is designed to do it doesn't take a lot of time every day five ten minutes of applying a skill listening to something keeping your brain fresh you'd be surprised what your brain can retain you're in a tough negotiation down the road you're dealing with your kids next week and all of a sudden boom you get this idea of something you listened to a couple of weeks ago and you get results that you would not have been able to get had you not subscribed to universitypersuasion.com. So go there, check it out, tweet us at InfluenceMax, like us on Facebook, just punch in Maximize Your Influence on the search bar. There you go, Kurt. Bills have been paid. All right, we like it. Thanks so much. Yes, yes, they're paid, and now Kurt gets to do that which humiliates him above all else. He gets to play Steve Urkel from the 90s sitcom Family Matters, who epitomizes geekiness, and and that uh, Kurt doesn't like it because it hints that he might be that level of geeky when it comes. Yeah, to it's kind of hurtful, but here we go. Go or go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the article. The one article we're not going to go into, but we've been talking about trust is the oxytocin. Remember, that's that trust molecule, and they found that well, it helps dogs and people bond, and I thought that was quite odd that they're spraying dogs and people with this this <laughs> this smell, but we're not going to go into Researchers that Researchers do a lot of weird things. Yeah, i just thinking uh, mailmen, uh, practical joke, <laughs> walking into a neighborhood full of dogs and you smell <laughs> like this. Yeah. Anyway, we won't go there, but we will talk about an article, and this this is one that's interesting. Why we slip up when we call our kids out, right? If you have three, four kids, we talked about kids today, that it's like, Bob, Joe, Frank, but you're like, how hard can it be? And I remember growing up, my mom going through all the whole list of kids, four kids growing up, and she would go through the whole list before she'd get to me. And I'm thinking, how hard is this? This is not that hard. And then fast forward as we become parents, it's kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> Logically doesn't sound hard, but it's, yeah kind of hard and so this is interesting this is out of the journal of memory and cognition right there on your nightstand yep. you probably read it already this comes from duke university dr david rubin needs your name to pronounce this time he calls it misnaming it's a cognitive mistake that happens all the time between family members or social groups what it reveals is that when this happens we could consider that person part of this group and so we're just pulling names from this group so it could be a a friend group, it could be a family group, and he was really interested in taking a look at it. It says it happens all the time in families and friend groups. It's not just you. You're not losing your mind. There's something about people being in that group in your brain, and you're just pulling out names till you get to the right one. And he says another contributing factor of misnaming is when two names in the same social group sound very similar. That's a challenge. 
And so he did a study with 1,700 people, and they all reported when they used the wrong name or what he calls misnaming. One thing interesting he found is that physical appearance was found to have very little influence on misnaming. And the person's age, because this happens with people in college, too. It's not just getting older. It's just every group. And even sometimes we throw in our pets' names into that group. So when you call your children your pet's name, that can't be a good thing, but it tends to happen. So bringing it all together, the main thing is, the reason it happened is that there's these social groups in our brain, and all those names are kind of clumped together. He didn't give us a solution. (laughs) So it happens. I think the thing to take away from this is that you're not losing your mind. It happens to everybody, every age group. There are things that cause it to accelerate, but it's for the most part because that person's considered part of the group. It could be a church group, a family group, a friend group, a peer group, a, a work group even sometimes. It comes together because your brain's falling from that same area, that same social group to make it happen. I thought that was interesting as far as memory and cognition. And again, I grew up thinking, it's not that hard, mom, not that hard, dad. And then you become a mom or a dad and like, oh, why is this happening? So the good news is the takeaway from the study is you're not losing your mind. You're not getting Alzheimer's yet. It's just part of how our brain is programmed. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Now, you know, I do that with my kids all the time. It just boggles my mind. I'm like, really? Not that hard. I grew up with you. Yeah. <laughs> You're my flesh and blood. I should know your name, but uh, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not you. It's your brain. Yeah. I guess it's part of you. So it is you, but you know, don't worry about it. Too. You got to credit George Costanza for that. He invented the, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> That's right. It's not you. It's yeah. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Thanks for the article. Super geeky. I've noticed that many of these studies They remind me of a, I think it's a credit monitoring commercial going around right now that just says, uh, oh, there's a problem with your credit. It does nothing to fix it. And the guy just says, that's the whole point is what good good is monitoring if it doesn't fix it? And sometimes these journals are like, yeah, we saw this thing. We don't don't know what it means, but it's a thing. You can't fix it, but it's a thing. Don't worry about it. And I think some of them, we need a new sound effect that's like... Duh. <laughs> Some of the articles you look at, I like, well, duh. Yeah. I think we learned that one in first grade. But thank you for spending millions of dollars and telling me something I already knew. Yep, yep. Well, Duke University <laughs> is private, so it wasn't your tax dollars, everybody. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it was somebody's dollars. <laughs> somebody's dollars. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, that's the point. It's always somebody's dollars. <laughs> Follow the money. Yep. Follow, Follow the money. The last couple of episodes, we've been talking about trust and and what some of the things that you can do to make people trust you. And I, I think the main takeaway that I have every time that we talk about this, every time that I think about it, I, I fall into this this pothole, this persuasion pothole, if you will, of assuming that that people trust me because I believe myself to be trustworthy. And, and I believe that I know what I'm talking about. Therefore, other people are just going to believe it. Not true, <laughs> right? How you mm-hmm. express yourself uh, definitely has has a bearing on what people think about you no matter how trustworthy you are, no matter how much you know. So that's what we're trying to help you tighten up, listeners, is how are you being perceived? Are you trustworthy? Are people thinking you know what you're talking about? Are people thinking that you don't know what you're talking about, but you're a nice person, right? I think, Kurt, you've used a great example where you've got a neighbor that you trust a lot and he decides to build an airplane. <laughs> Could you? I think that illustrates the point nicely. Would you mind going over that? Yeah, that's a great example because... The different C's, we call the five C's of trust that we've been going over, and we'll talk about a few more today, that a lot of people think it's all character, the integrity, the honesty, that if you have character, everybody trusts you. And a UCLA study did show that character is huge in business for long-term success and long-term trust. 
people forget about the competent side. And so the example I give is your neighbor, good person, salt of the earth. Everyone likes him. You have the great trust, a lot of interaction. And they found on the internet a way to build an airplane out of beer cans. (laughs) (laughs) They're not an engineer, but it's on the internet. So it must be a good thing. And so they actually build an airplane out of spare parts they find in their garage and their vacuum cleaner and beer cans. And it's done and it's built. And here comes this neighbor that you trust. Well, you trust their character anyway. And they want you to go on the maiden flight because you're their favorite neighbor. So the question is, would you trust them? They're not an engineer. They just built an airplane off of something the internet. Would you go on that first flight? And the answer is probably no because you got to have the competence with the character. Two very important pieces of trust. Those come together. And remember, we've said this last couple episodes, I know you're a good, trustworthy person because you're listening to the show. How's that, yeah, right? Ooh, but it doesn't mean that people automatically trust you. Times have changed. You've got to earn it and earn it fast. Yeah, yeah. So we've hit those first few points, and we're, we're going to wind up trust today. Well, what else is missing? Right? We've been dealing with the confidence. We've been dealing with the confidence. What else do we have to do? Because obviously... You can't have trust without having all of these. You can have some of them, but it doesn't mean somebody's going to trust you. Yeah, so we've talked about character and competence and confidence and, of course, credibility. We've talked about one of the C's that a lot of people don't think about because it's a subconscious thing is congruence. Do your words match your actions? Does your voice inflection match your words over the phone? Do the words in your email match your last interaction? And we don't realize that a lot of times we are showing signals of distrust and we don't even know it. And we might not even be lying. That's the challenge here because especially if you give presentations, when you get nervous, a lot of times you are doing things that are very incongruent and you don't even know it because you're nervous and that nervous energy can actually tell your audience that you're being deceptive even though you're not. You have to be congruent with your message, with your nonverbal behavior, with your voice inflections, with every aspect of your message. They're like, oh, deceptive, and it's just a feeling we get. Yep, they're lying to us. So, Kurt, what are some of the things that we we could be doing that cause that perceived incongruence? It depends if it's face-to-face. Let's talk about, well, face-to-face, for example. Sometimes forced eye contact because we're getting a little nervous and like, oh, I have to look them in the eye because if I don't, they won't trust yeah, me. Yeah. And you're looking at them too much and you're freaking them out. That could be one. A change in eye contact. If you get nervous in your chair, you're shifting backwards and forwards could do it. Anytime you touch your face. And that's an interesting one. You might have an itch. I had to work on that. I'm like, yeah, you've got an itch, you itch it. But if you're touching your lips or your face quite a bit, that's a subconscious thing that you are being deceptive because a lot of the blood goes to your extremity, your ears, your nose, your lips, and they, they tend to itch a little bit. And so that could be something that you're doing. Increase in yawning is an interesting one that we've seen, the way your voice works. And even the mannerisms when you're speaking, the things that you could be doing that cause distrust. And you just have to be aware. I encourage everyone to record their presentations, even the audio, hopefully the video, to see gestures. I mean, even simple things, and you've taken public speaking before, Steve, the fig leaf. If everyone needs to know the fig leaf, that's when you're crossing your hands in front of you, where you're kind of covering up your private parts, or you're (laughs) folding your arms, or there's that barrier there that could cause distrust, and people naturally do it. Vocal fillers increase distrust. Um, uh, You know, we've talked about that before, and you're just doing it and don't even know it. And again, it's causing distrust, it's causing incongruence. Your message has to be sound. I've seen people 
in negotiations before where the other side's all angry and well they well they're thinking to themselves well I should be angry like well I'm angry too they look at him and then they hit the table like three seconds later and that's not congruent because when you're angry you're hitting the table the same time you're yelling at them but they have invented this emotion and when you invent emotion it lasts a lot t- and when you invent emotion it lasts a lot longer mm-hmm. if somebody's smiling too long or making that angry face too long. When people invent emotions, it lasts a lot longer than it normally should, and that could be something you may or might be doing on, on purpose. Maybe you're doing it on accident, but be aware that these things could be happening to you. Right, right. That's so true, The that perception. I think that, especially on vocal fillers, we all do it. I've had people where they've done it so much that my conscious mind becomes aware of it, and they're definitely not going to get my business at that point. However, we all do it to where the subconscious mind is detecting it. And you've probably met these people that are very good persuaders. They seem very well-spoken, super confident, super competent. And I would bet you that almost every time those vocal fillers are, are down to practically nothing. And that subconscious mind is telling you there are no vocal fillers. This person clearly knows what they're doing. Trust them. Yeah, a few here and there is okay, but it's the point where you're using way too many. And here's what's important. We teach a lot of people how to do persuasive presentations, been doing it for a long time. The time to fix your vocal fillers is not right when you get on the stage or right before that presentation, right in the boardroom, or your gestures or anything. That's done in practice because if you're trying to fix your vocal fillers at the last second during the presentation or your gestures or your fig leaves or your drooling or your profanity or whatever it is that you're doing, it's got to be fixed during practice. Because if you try to mentally fix it during your presentation, it's going to take so much mental energy that it's, your audience is going to sense something's off, something's not quite right, because all your energy is going to the wrong spot versus really connecting and persuading the audience. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. So what else should we be aware of on this as we wind down trust? Remember, when we talked about credibility, that when you reveal a weakness, it actually gives you more credibility. Because people are looking for something that's wrong with you, your product, your service, your idea. You have to give them a minor weakness and turn it into a strength. And let me give you some examples, some famous marketing examples out there to kind of illustrate this as we talk about this. For example, Avis Rent-A-Car. I think they were number three or four at the time. Hertz was always number one. They were the big boys. And so Avis came out and said, you know, we're number two, but we try harder. <laughs> so they like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not number one weakness, but hey, we try harder actually got him to number two. Listerine, nasty. They say, hey, it's the taste you hate twice a day. It is. It is nasty. It's gross, but it kills the germs. L'Oreal, expensive makeup, right? But their slogan is, they acknowledge, yeah, it is, but you're worth it. The Volkswagen Bug, when it came out in the 60s, this is one of my favorite ones. They said, this car is so slow, weakness, but you'll never get a ticket. <laughs> Strength. That's a good That one. would be one. Heinz ketchup gets complaints. It's too thick. I can't get it out. I got to stick my knife up there. Like, yeah, you'll have to wait. But that's anticipation. That's quality. What do you want? A runny ketchup? Or Smucker's, <laughs> the jams, the jellies is, with well, a name like that, it's got to be good. And so, <laughs> on one hand, they're making fun of themselves. They acknowledge it. Your audience is going to find out anyway. For example, if you were a entrepreneur and two or three people in your company, or even one person in your company, you were going up against a 100-person corporation. That's a perceived weakness. They're going to find out anyway. Why not increase your trust? Reveal it. Yeah, we are smaller. 
All right, there's your weakness. Now turn to a strength. But you know what? This is our main project right now. You won't get lost in the cracks. We work on the weekend. You can call my cell phone 24 hours a day. I'm personally going to hold you by the hand through every process. Bam, weakness into a strength. All of a sudden, it works a lot better. So do not be scared. Reveal a minor flaw, minor weakness. They're looking for something anyway. And you might as well give them one because if you don't, they're going to assign one to you. And so the question is, do you want them to assign a weird, strange one to you that makes no sense? Or do you want to give them a minor little weakness, increase your trust, turn that into a strength, and persuade them to do business with you? There you go. There you go. That's absolutely right. Just so much more human if there's some kind of a weakness. Too polished is... Yeah, that's a big, big challenge if you're too polished. That's why a lot of times, I know in my presentations, I almost do better on the very first time I do a presentation than the 10th time because sometimes it gets a little too polished. Yeah. I think that's a problem that a lot of people had with uh, Mitt Romney in the last presidential election. He was just too perfect, right? Uh, too perfect, too polished. Yeah, maybe they need a little more flaws. So, yeah. yeah. Like, well, they found it. He put his dog on the roof of his car. Yeah, that's not the right kind of flaw. He needs to control <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were really searching for stuff. They're like, yeah, he put the dog carrier on top of the roof. Yeah, they're going to find well, something, right? And most people are like, yeah, I'd probably do that too. <laughs> Didn't hurt the dog. That was good to me. Not room for him in the car, but we got to take him. Better than the kids, right? I mean, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good stuff on trust, Kurt. Anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Let's bring it all together to show you the importance of each C and identify each C for you and, and have some fun with it is – we all want a dentist we can trust. I mean, that's kind of a given. And let's say you've moved thousands of miles from your past dentist, your tooth hurting, you don't know where to go, and you ask your first neighbor, say, hey, can you recommend a dentist? And they're just like, sure, no, a great dentist, great character, good person, belongs to my church group. But they're just not very competent, though. Last time I was there, they stuck a needle completely through my cheek. Oh. <laughs> and they pulled my son's wrong tooth. But they really good people. And you're like, all right, no way. So you go to your another neighbor and like, hey, can you recommend a dentist? They don't. Great dentist. Graduate top of the class. Best in the state. You'll just have to wait a few weeks till you get out of jail for insurance fraud. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you only need one filling to put in two and they'll bill you for three. But they're the best fillings you can get in the state. Yep. No trust. Then there's the confidence part. What if you're laying in a dental chair and the dentist, and we're still not sure why they do this, they put the x-rays in like you have any idea what's going on. They show you these things. And what if a dentist turned to you and said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, you see the gray over there? I'm thinking you need a root canal. What do you think? What's your opinion? Freak you out, you'd probably run. Or credibility. You're driving around town and it says family dentist. You walk in, and there's a degree, a dental degree on the wall from a country you've never heard of. As you keep walking in, there's a sign that says cash only, no credit cards, no insurance, no checks. <laughs> and the dentist comes out in a black leather jacket, an actual tool belt with an actual drill and a hammer. I don't know at what point you've lost credibility. And then there's the congruence. Do your words match your actions? He actually did a study with dentists. He had people looking at pain and feeling pain, placebos, not placebos. They found that when the dentist was lying, even though the dentist thought they were doing everything they did before, that they were feeling a lot more pain, a lot more discomfort. And that's a whole other episode on deception and lying and subconscious triggers and placebos. But there is something about how we pick up in micro-expressions and mannerisms that we sense someone's deceiving us and they're not to be trusted. Good stuff. Got to have them all together in order to be trusted. Exactly. Not a cafeteria line where you can pick and choose. So, 
Thanks, Kurt. That really ties it together nicely. So we're we're all wrapped up on trust. If you have any comments, questions, derogatory remarks, just tweet them at us at InfluenceMax or send them to us at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. In the meantime, Kurt, we need you to cue up the Homer. Our fun and our favorite. Homer, go! Don't, don't, don't! This is a tough one. <laughs> I'm going to try to be careful here, but I don't know how careful I can be. And you know what? Some of this might be historical ignorance, cultural ignorance on my part. But I don't think so, Kurt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do tell. I don't think so. We're going to bring a a dark feeling over the podcast, okay? (laughs) I can feel it just kind of... Because I want to do this before I tell the story and people start judging me. But, okay, (laughs) how do you feel when I say the word swastika? I did studies with that one. That's a subconscious trigger. It triggers a lot of negative feelings. Okay, so maybe I'm not a moron. So let's go here. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe I'm not totally ignorant. Come on. I'm still right. a moron. Okay. okay, there we go. By the way, I said maybe. Right. Oh, yeah. okay. I've got some neighbors. I was going to my mailbox the other day, and these neighbors are from a, a different country, different culture. That's fine. No problem. They have a, an interpretation of something, though, that I think is going to be a problem. They've got their house on the market. They want to sell it. And I'm walking down the street from my mailbox to my house and I see on their front door a swastika is painted on there and I'm I'm kind of freaking out I grew up in the United States of America my grandpa fought in World War II that to me that is a not good thing to see and most people in the area that's how it is right and so I'm thinking should I go tell them I mean are they a victim of a hate crime (laughs) what happened here what's going on and I get home and I, I look it up because somewhere in the back of my mind, I heard that, uh, you know, that was used and it was used previously in another culture. And sure enough, in India, it's a sign. And I think it's in the Hindu religion. Forgive some ignorance here. I'm not trying to uh, talk about my knowledge or lack thereof of Indian culture, but it's taken as a symbol of, you know, we want good luck. We want to prosper. That's what the swastika meant anciently in the Indian culture. And we all know that, of course, uh, another culture used it since then for much more sinister things. So they had put this on their door to kind of wish themselves prosperity and luck as they go to sell their property. In the meantime, 95% of the people coming through that door to see it are Americans and from our culture and what do we attribute it? It's, it's Nazis and it's uh, death camps and it's trying to take over the world. And that's the symbol people are seeing when they walk into the house. <laughs> the first thing mm. that they see, uh, this is tough because we understand the religious side of it. We get that. But the people who you want to buy the house do not, I would think for the most part, you got to play the numbers here, you know, unless you're specifically targeting uh, Indian buyers who don't have that affiliation this is a very bad idea, uh, <laughs> but I'm getting into religion here. You might think you're thinking, oh, well, spiritually, it's going to trump all that and it's not going to matter. OK, I understand. I'm viewing it, though, from a buyer standpoint, and I'm going if I'm going into that house, I'm kind of tripping a little bit. So, Kurt, am I an ignoramus or do I have a valid concern here? Well, both. <laughs> okay. I just had to say that. You set me up yeah, there. I, I set you up a few times. I, I laugh because I'm probably the biggest homer when it comes to different cultures. And and it's interesting because I've done trainings in the Caribbean, the South America, 
Middle East, Asia, Europe. Here's what I've found, and I've offended a lot of people, and I haven't done it on purpose, but I have to take the blunder on me. If I'm going to another culture, I have to be aware of it. And sometimes you can find things out and some things you can't. But what I have found out that for the most part as humans, all of us are pretty much all alike. There's about 80% of it. We like to laugh and there's the family and certain things. It's the other 20% that could be personality, religions, or nature, nurture. There's all those little things that we have little differences there. It's interesting. Most of the audiences are very, very similar all over the world, but there's that 20% we have to be aware of. There's gestures in Brazil that are totally okay in the United States, but if you do it down there, you're going to offend somebody. The Middle East, that if you show the bottom of your feet, I mean, the United States, we put our feet up, we cross our legs. You do that in the Middle East, man, that is super offensive. I've done that. And I knew about it, but sometimes you get so comfortable with somebody because they're just like you in a lot of ways, you forget about that 20%. Or I believe it was the color purple in Thailand is reserved for royalty. You've got to be careful the use of that color. I'm guilty. I think we're all guilty. But I think the good news is we're all so much alike around the world, but it's that 20% that's different as far as the beliefs in the country, religious beliefs, different personalities, uh, different things. Some cultures are more individualistic. Some cultures are more about the community. It's just a little bit different. That's okay, and you have to be aware of it and be quick to apologize because that's part of it too. You don't say, well, that shouldn't offend you. But if you're in another thing, well, I'm sorry, that was my intent. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have crossed my legs. I shouldn't have done that ge- that gesture. I shouldn't have wore that color, those sort of things. And even like you said, mentioned religious things, especially in Asia, there are certain things that are really sacred that even if you don't understand it, it's sacred to them. And you got to be very careful on how you handle those type of things. Right, right. So if that's the case, you know, in, in uh, Indian culture or Hindu religion, that's not my intention to to draw offense to this. I'm just looking at it from the perspective of, the likely customers of the house. And and I don't know that there's that many instances in, in all of history where you can have one symbol that's very sacred and good to one culture that is just completely offensive uh, to another. But that's a tough, so that's a tough one. You know, we, we, it we, is just in being aware. Yeah. I think there's, and it's something that we've all done and need to be, be aware of, but it is something that he should know, right? Yeah. That, uh, wow, you want to sell your house? That's pretty offensive to most people in your demographic that you're trying to sell this house to. I mean, it's great that you're baking cookies yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the smell when we talk about smells and different things and persuasion, but there's something about that symbol that hopefully you can see people's faces when you open the door that something's not quite right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say. All I know is there's a blunder <laughs> in there somewhere. So Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But all the luck to my neighbors, all the, uh, you know, best wishes in, in selling the house. I think I, I know a good place to start to make it go faster, but that's up to you. All right. There we go. <laughs> We're going to finish up the show today. Everybody, once again, follow us on Twitter at Influence Max and like us on Facebook. We're going to catch you next week on another episode. Take care. Good luck and persuade with power. <laughs>